for the word of the Lord. I mentioned last week how we're exploring two different spheres of the work of redemption um, as we continue to explore the God's mission plan. Last week we looked within. The mission is to have any integrity. It needs to start with ourselves and go deep into our whole being, not just how we present outwardly to the world, but what shapes the choices, the hopes, the ambitions, the passions, the desires that we have comes out of our hearts and our mind and how God renews and transforms that. Then as I indicated last week, a second sphere then relates to that is the outer world, the world of our cultural environment, the way in which we engage with others so that the nature, the character of our community is shaped no less by God's purposes, God's intention. So this week as we look at the... uh, Uh, Ephesians 5, the first half of the chapter, verses 1 to 17, which Tim just read for us, I want to highlight in particular the the nature of redemption as that movement from darkness to life-giving light. And we'll explore that theme a bit more as we progress. The verse, uh, or the passage starts off with enormous challenge, but also a very practical way to progress. The challenge is to be imitators of God. Now how can we imitate God when God is God and we are not? And we know that. Um, God's uh, character is such a depth and width and so on. But we are to seek to be imitators of that which we love. It is a characteristic that that which we love and idolise will begin to shape the way in which we see and view ourselves. So, as Paul says, as dearly loved children, we get to the, the therefore. What does this actually look like? And Paul then moves into the practical uh, uh, exhortation. Therefore, walk in the way of Love just as Christ loved us and for the grace that he himself has been given for us. So, themes of, of love, of uh, grace, Paul has been talking an awful lot about that already in Ephesians. So the practical side of things is <clears throat> when we need to face how am I going to respond to the situation, to this need, we can ask ourselves the question, What would Jesus do in these circumstances? If I could picture Jesus being here, how could we imagine um, the choices that Jesus would make? It's been a very popular theme that is uh, used of uh, WJDD, what would Jesus do? Uh, One of the ironies in WWJD is that... uh, um, a number of years ago, the Kurong Bookstore, you might know Kurong is a Christian store, stores right around Australia, um, did an inventory of the most stolen item out of uh, Kurong Bookstores. The most stolen item were the wristbands, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I'm pretty sure Jesus would not be stealing wristbands out of Kurong Books. Anyway, 
but actually, it's a, it's a helpful way to think in terms of mission, engagement with our wider community and all its messiness. How can we imagine Jesus would be responding in these circumstances? So the passage gives us a significant list of do's and don'ts. Don't do various things because that's the way in which... Thank you, Fiona. Um, those who, uh, um, before they came to know Christ, were going about life. He says, when you put off the old, as we saw last week, you cease doing various things that you used to do and do start doing the things that is putting on the new life in Christ, as Christ calls us. I'm not going to go through in those in detail. They're fairly um, self-explanatory. It doesn't take a lot of interpretation other than just to, to sit and to read and reflect on ways in which they can shape the way, uh, way, way we think and perhaps how we act as well. But I want to take a bigger picture approach to this passage and take it as big as it comes, which is to recognise that the light shining in darkness, of darkness being dispelled, is as big as creation itself. So let me just do a very brief and quick recap of the, some of the big themes that we've been identifying as part of God's mission plan for this world. And you might remember we started in the first two verses of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then he goes into what does this act of creation look like? Now, the earth was total chaos and darkness covered the deep. The darkness is not explained. It's an evocative term. We don't know quite what it, um, whether it has moral character or what it is, but it is threatening it is unsettling and it needs to be, um, uh, light needs to, to move and to bring order out of that chaos, out of that darkness. So we saw that, that uh, against the backdrop of an imperfect world where darkness continues to hover over the deep, darkness continues to shape the nature of history and human experience and the news that we hear around the world. The big thing that changed that in the rest of the Bible is the unpacking of it, is that the spirit of God, the word is ruach, the word is the breath of God, the wind of God, the spirit of God swept over the face of the waters. And so the darkness begins to dispel and the light and the life that comes begins to take and to shape the world. We also quite remember, and uh, I have a reason for reminding for this particular theme, and the second creation narrative in Genesis 2, <clears throat> God took the man, the earth creature, and put him in the Garden of Eden. And the two verbs that are used there, and this is a big picture of what uh, God's calling upon all, all humanity being created in the image and likeness of God, to cultivate the garden and to take care of it, to exercise stewardship. And this is still the big picture stuff. It isn't just the material environment in terms of the earth and the um, climate and all those types of issues. It certainly includes that. But it talks about all that we create as a... As a 
um, by way of community, by way of culture, by way of neighbourhoods and uh, all that goes with um, human activity is all uh, described as cultivating and taking care of this world and life as we have received it. With that backdrop, let's revisit the passage. So in this passage in Ephesians 5, Paul is taking these themes of light and darkness and he uses it to contrast their former way of life before they came um, to have an understanding of Jesus Christ. They were Gentiles, so they were living largely as it was reflections of their culture. And Paul characterised that lifestyle as darkness. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. I was really struck when I was preparing for this on that phrase, the fruit of light. It's uh, something that actually generates something that is uh, shared, it grows and can become to flourish further afield. Paul continues, We have nothing, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Let's just stay with that imagery for a moment. Many, many years ago, I remember seeing a movie called The Poseidon Adventure. Anyone seen The Poseidon Adventure? Based on the book by Paul Gallico. Don't view that if you're about to go on a cruise. Um, it's the story of a cruise liner that turns upside down and the entire movie is in the darkness inside the hole as they try to make their way on the upside down up towards the uh, um, the surface. You might recall, for those who have seen it, the, uh, the moment right at the end of the movie, having been through all the darkness and the steam and the horror, that eventually the rescue is cut into the hole and this big shaft of daylight comes in for those who survived um, and managed to emerge. You can imagine the experience for those who have been uh, entrapped in some way to know what it is to suddenly have a, a window opened or a shaft of light to come through and suddenly the world is viewed differently. That's an image that Paul was using here to talk about the, the work of the gospel, the light of Christ breaking into our darkness and bringing light and hope. But it also exposes all that is not good. Again, if you think through pretty much any disaster movie or any sort of a conflict-based movie, that if the director wants to create a, a foreboding atmosphere, they'll bring in darkness and shadows and that sort of creepy music that seems to accompany it. Um, and if you want to portray a, uh, a world which all was not right, often there'll be a lot of bitterness and anger and abuse and conflict happening and uh, people really uh, thinking of themselves and no one else. That sort of uh, background is also exposed by the light for what it is as something that is to be avoided. So Paul talks about this imagery uh, as an image of the gospel. And in this verse, that really is the one I want to focus on uh, in the whole passage. 
but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. I hadn't noticed that before until I reread the passage. Everything that is illuminated becomes a light itself. Now, I had a big discovery. It was about late last night. Fiona had gone to bed. Um, and I came across an artwork that conveyed just what I was looking for. I didn't go and wake Fiona up and just say, you have to look at this or check the type of art. I'll have to check with Frank and Fiona. I think it's a form of phobism, but you can correct me afterwards. But that's the bit of artwork that I came across last night to convey. Isn't it delightful? To convey the, how that which is illuminated becomes light itself and it generates a whole culture around it, an environment. And spiritually, the work of the Christian faith has that capacity. It hasn't always lived up to it, but actually has brought light and life in that sense. So Paul was urging us to, to become radiant in that sense of the qualities of the way in which we have been recreated and transformed is like light shining in the darkness. One of the things I love about uh, gardening and I'm enjoying it in the, uh, the rectory and uh, in more natural environments is how in a dark forest or in a, something that has been shrouded with a big canopy, um, how if, you, if the, uh, the canopy is thinned out, then light can come through the canopy and new life can emerge in the whole ecosystem. So the image here is one that uh, you can begin to see in, uh, where the light, even dappled light, that all that is down at ground level can suddenly find a new life, a new beauty to begin to emerge I want to stay with that theme a bit as uh, we consider what it is to take on something that is in need of attention. I actually must confess that I, I love this part of gardening where get some shears, um, shears in my hand, others do caution me, don't get overly ambitious, but if we have a garden that has been, uh, vines have been uh, growing into a canopy and all these different types of things, what is needed? You need to underprune. You need to go in and to cut away the vines and let light come in to see what is below. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing to see what emerges that can uh, either come to, to new life or what might be planted in that space. So in that context, I want to tell you a story of the lost gardens of um, Heligan. Has anyone been to the lost gardens? A few have been in uh, Cornwall. <coughs> The Lost Gardens of Heligan have a long history. The original gardens were planted in the 14th century and had always been gardens in this part close to the coast in Cornwall, at the south coast in Cornwall. And uh, in the 18th century, 1700s, um, it was really quite a significant garden and a lot of exotic plants were brought back from right around the world, from the Americas, from uh, Australia and New Zealand and other places were brought back and in that particular soil that developed a uh, quite a, 
uh, exotic garden in, uh, in this place of Heligan, near, near Mevagisi. However, the, uh, the gardens um, were discovered in the 1990s uh, and it was in a state of um, being totally overgrown that even most didn't even know there was a garden there until they discovered a, a door in a wall and they just, the owner who hadn't been there for many years and a local builder went through the wall and what they discovered was a very overgrown garden um, derelict in many different places but it caught their imagination and as they went through and began to explore what was this great garden that has been discovered they unearthed behind it a story where in the, uh, the garden that had been a significant feature uh, that people would travel to in the uh, 19th century. Um, when it came to the First World War, of the 14 gardeners um, who went over, enlisted and went over to the Western Front, uh, nine of the 14 died. Only four were able to come back, and the house never recovered. It had been used as a convalescent hospital, then a whole range of different types of things, and rented out as apartments in the 1970s, um, and the, the desire was to work through. So the vision was caught, let's try and explore what we can discover of this garden. And it's been going since 1990 um, and still going today, even when it was actually shut down during COVID, they were able to extract some of the vegetables and hand them out in baskets for those who had particular needs. So it's a, a working farm as well as a garden. And what they discovered when they explored the paths below it um, was a magnificent garden. That's an aerial view of just one corner. I think it's about 12 acres um, as the immediate gardens as well as some farming area around. And as you step in, they have uh, restored what was previously there um, as well as introduced, as best they're able, replanted the types of vegetables and plants that they found. One of the, I could have given you a lot more photos than this, but one of them is a magnificent, magnificent magnolia tree that is literally bigger than the size of this church. It's an enormous one magnolia tree that has been there for 150 years and uh, it's quite a sight, as well as some of the exotic plants. What was needed was to uncover it to do the, the weeding, the pruning and allow the light to come through and let nature, let God's creation do its thing and the life that emerges. So it is now an absolute delightful gardens to wander through in their paths and the different sections. And for me, when I was thinking about the, the work of the gospel of bringing new life, of recreation, often it does involve our pruning away the dead wood, pruning away things that are part of former ways of life. Paul says you don't need to have that. Let the light come in and that will be life-giving. So it takes us back to that theme about our responsibility, our calling as humans and certainly within the church to be cultivators, to be cultivating and culture-making it does involve the materiality of things that we do. We busy ourselves in terms of our homes and neighbourhood and workplace and different groups that we may be part of. It's part of the vision we have for the maker space. 
and the types of projects that we might initiate, but it is no less and probably even more about the, the culture in which we shape around it, a culture that is not characterised by self-centredness and about seeking whatever we can do and putting other people down and of gossip and speaking harshly and all the poor names in that list. They are all the don't do that. Cut, prune those out of our life and allow that light to emerge with all that is good and healthy. That is our calling. That is our mission as a church. So Paul finishes the passage with this look carefully then how you walk. The word that Paul uses to live is actually the word for walk. Walk this way, live this way, this life. Look carefully. Now that the light has shone, why do you walk into things that are going to cause you harm? Let me give you a very simple explanation that some, many of you may know, may think of. If you have to navigate a dark room at home at night, what is the most fiendish invention that has ever been created to cause a pain to our feet if you have to navigate a room in the dark with bare feet. I had little doubt that others would say, Lego is the, ooh, it's just, it bites through it. Parents, grandparents know what it is. Who left that Lego there? Once the light comes on, you avoid the Lego. Paul says, the light is shining, avoid those things which cause harm, either for you or others. Don't do it, he says. But rather, be about the things that are creative and healthy and satisfying and a delight to God. So Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as the wise who have had this light shone into our lives and into our community. Next week we're going to explore how the Spirit enables us to do that so much more effectively. It isn't just a calling upon all, all humans, but through the church there is a capacity to bring a special measure of that light and of that joy into our life in a way in which we can share with those around us. Amen. We're going to have our interlude item at this stage.